have a seat. And welcome, Dustin, friend to Springvale. Spoken here several times, like I said. Get ready, uh, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Dustin, take it away. Um, We managed to escape the great nation of Quebec under the cover of darkness uh, to get here. If you don't know what's happening in uh, the country just to the east of you, um, Quebec has lost its collective mind uh, right now during this pandemic, and it's made life and ministry nearly impossible. Uh, So we would uh, covet your prayers for us as we figure out what it looks like to navigate this very strange season. We've got curfews, we've got taxes, churches are shut, we get tased when we go outside. Uh, just kidding, probably. Um, that might be next. But we got all sorts of stuff. So if you could pray for us, um, it's really tough for places of worship um, right now in Quebec. And we've uh, been able to develop really good relationships with some of our local officials, as well as other leaders in other religious communities to try to have decent conversations respectfully with the government about why we are essential and how we want to serve and love our communities. Uh, so that would be great. Uh, but it, it is always great to be with you. Uh, you are our home away from home. And And uh, especially in this series, it's something that we as a family, especially over COVID, have really been able to lean in and practice certain things. So looking at the family, but specifically looking at discipleship in the context of the family. So today we're going to try to be as practical as possible. I'm going to try to stick to the time that I've been given without getting in too much trouble. But we're going to look specifically at some of the practices and habits that make up the life of a disciple. Now, disclaimer, I'm going to talk about families a little bit, but if you are not yet married or you are married and do not yet have kids, please don't tune me out. Because everything that we're going to talk about, all of the practices and rhythms that we're going to kind of explore this morning apply to followers of Jesus, not just those in families with kids, okay? So this is not just that. It is going to help, I think, provide a little bit of a trellis for us in families to kind of develop good rhythms, but uh, it also applies for those who are not yet in that situation. Family discipleship really, simply, is just uh, discipleship that's happening in the context of our home life, It's everyday life as we follow Jesus. So it's not just about being married and being parents with kids, but these are habits and rhythms that apply to all of us as we shape our daily lives. And so that's what we're going to try to focus on. The aim of family discipleship, in the context of family as parents, uh, we have two kids of our own, and before that we had 17 teenage boys that we fostered, and so we we did parenting kind of backwards. Um, But for us, in the context of a family, the aim of family discipleship is no different than the aim of discipleship. You with me on that? There's nothing different about the two. It just happens, the, the, the change of context is what happens there. But here's what's really important. Our, de- our definition of what a disciple is will determine the methods that we use to form disciples. The what of discipleship dictates and kind of determines the how of discipleship. So for us, if a Christian or a disciple is someone who goes to church Uh, knows some Bible verses, is a good person and volunteers when they can and votes conservative, then what we'll do is we'll form disciples after that paradigm. That's what we'll try to do as we form disciples. But if we understand discipleship more biblically and more historically, if a disciple is actually an apprentice of Jesus, following after Jesus, being changed by Jesus to live everyday life for Jesus, then our discipleship rhythms and methods will be radically different. Are you with me on that? That'll change drastically how we approach discipleship. And that's what's really, really important about what we're going to look at this morning. 
Uh, one of my favorite definitions of discipleship and a disciple is from Dallas Willard. It'll be up here on the screen. He said, a disciple is a learner, a student, an apprentice, a practitioner. Disciples of Jesus are people who do not just profess certain views as their own, but apply their growing understanding of life in the kingdom of God to every aspect of their life on earth. I think that's a really, really good definition because it stresses the practice aspect of discipleship. That discipleship is not just a download of information, it's actually the formation of our entire lives to become like Christ. And Jesus set very specific ways that he modeled that, and then the invitation to discipleship is come, follow me, do what I do, and I will make you like me. That's why I think Dallas Willard's definition is good here. Now, many of us have different levels of education, and we've been in different contexts, whether it's trade school or college or university or higher education in different ways. But discipleship, we've got to be careful not to think about it like university, where we just kind of sit in the classroom for hours and hours and hours and get a download of theory and textbook after textbook after textbook that are ungodly prices. Amen? You've got to think about discipleship far less like university and far more like trade school. Not just a download of information, but applied knowledge and skills that are actually required for the workforce, actually required for the field that you're entering in. And this is exactly when you pay attention through the Gospels and you look at how the early church is living in the book of Acts. This is exactly how Jesus formed his disciples and invited us to follow him. Not that we would just be people being informed by what Jesus said, but that we would be people so radically formed by who he is and what he did that our lives would be transformed from the inside out. That's discipleship. Not just listen to what he said, but imitate what he did. And parents, if you're in the room, you understand that so much of parenting is, is more caught than taught. Your kids are going to imitate what you do far more than what they're going to listen to what you say, for better or for worse. But that is parenting, but that is also how we go through the rest of life. So much of discipleship actually is supposed to be caught and not simply taught. When we ask our kids to go clean their rooms, I have a certain standard of what they're supposed to do, right? So if I send my son Gabriel up to his room to clean it, and 30 minutes later I go up and I say, hey, how's it going? And I open the door, and he has done nothing, but he tells me, dad, I read this really good book on room cleaning methods. I actually even watched this awesome TED talk. It was super inspiring, right? I was really inspired after. I even like, I don't know, I had a couple tears. I had, I had goosebumps watching it. It's like, yeah, but you didn't clean your room. You did nothing, right? No, no, but I, I watched the TED talk. It's like, no, no, but that, that doesn't count because the task that you're called on is to actually do something, I'm trying to form you into doing things that are healthy for you and healthy for our household. And when Jesus calls the church the household of God, that's exactly what he's getting at. That we have a job to do. That we have a life to be lived. That we, we are supposed to be formed by the rhythms of disciples, as of discipleship, so that we end up conformed into the image of Christ. That's the target of discipleship. And all throughout the New Testament, we see it. And it's super important because sometimes we can relegate discipleship to a ministry of the church. It's like, oh, maybe it's like a class or it's like for like the really smart people, they go to the discipleship class or whatever it is. When you pay attention throughout the New Testament, discipleship is not a ministry of the church. It is the ministry of the church. 
In fact, it's the mission statement that Jesus gives his church. Post-resurrection, he's standing there resurrected. The disciples are like, what is happening? How are you still here? And he's like, listen, I've got a mission statement for you. And in Matthew 28, he says, now go into all the world and do what? Learn a lot of stuff. No, go and make disciples and teach them to obey, to practice and live how I've shown you how to practice and live. There's something about formation. There's something that shows up in our lives as disciples of Jesus that we're actually called to a life of obedience and practice. But here's the beautiful thing about it. We're not working for something. We're not working for a value or an identity. We're working from the identity that is already ours. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, committing yourselves to good rhythms and practices of discipleship is nothing less than you practicing the identity that already belongs to you. It's you living a life and becoming who you already are. Amen? And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, the invitation to you is to stop going after different ways of formation and come to Jesus because it's actually in him that you'll be formed and be given life and ultimately have rest. But it shows up somehow, right? Shows up in how we live. Shows up in the practices and the rhythms that we structure our daily lives around. 1 Timothy 4, it's probably one of my favorite examples of this kind of thing. Listen, 1 Timothy 4, Paul's writing to a younger Timothy about how to do this thing. Verse 7 and 8, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Anybody have any of those lately? Nothing? No? Online? No, no myths floating around, nothing at all in, in people that you know? Okay, yeah, me neither. It's okay. But have nothing to do with those. Rather, instead of that, instead of focusing on all of that nonsense and silliness, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit. It's good. But godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for now in the present life, but also for the life to come. Paul's like, listen, work out. Do your Peloton. Go, go crazy. Like, do it. Get, get a six-pack. Do that. But that is of limited benefit. But here's the thing. Train yourself for godliness because that is of eternal benefit. But not just for, well, I'll just I'll hold out till I go to heaven and then it'll be eternally mine. It's like, no, no, no. It's for present value now too. That this life that is promised to us that we are given, that we are invited into is one that we're actually experiencing rest, but while we work towards it. Do you see the paradox? The word that, that Paul uses here for uh, train yourself is actually the, the Greek word gymnasium. It's like a sweaty word, right? There, there, there's something to it. It's like you actually have to exercise. You actually have to practice. You actually have to work out the disciplines of a disciple in order to grow as a disciple. How many of you think of discipleship like that? I don't. I, I don't. I really don't. My default is be like, I'm saved. Jesus, do your thing. And it's like, yes, but Jesus already did the thing to save me, so now I gotta do a thing, amen? Like, like, like we, are, we are saved not by works, but we are saved to works. We're saved to good works. We're saved to go out into a world that does not know, a watching world that does not know the rest and peace and life that we have in Jesus, and to demonstrate it and imitate it because we've been renewed already. We don't look and live towards a work that God's gonna do. We work from it because it's already done. 
He already rose. He already gave us life. He already took my guilt and shame and condemnation. Now I get to live free. Amen? That is how we practice discipleship. Disciples of Jesus practice the disciplines of Jesus. And without discipline, there will be no discipleship. Without practice, there will be no progress. There just won't. No one drifts towards a vibrant spiritual life. You don't. I don't. You don't drift towards a six-pack either. That's why I don't have one. Right? You don't drift towards a six-pack just like you do not drift towards spiritual vitality. Amen? We don't drift there. Your default, listen, hear me. Your default is to drift away from God, not towards him. Your default is independence from God, not dependence upon him. That's your default. That's my heart. That's your heart. So there has to be some counterformation. There has to be some intentionality about how we approach following after Jesus. So parents, if you are a parent, practicing this and modeling Christian disciplines is not an add-on to your parenting. It's not. It is literally the job that God has given to you as a parent. That is the job. Notice what Paul says. It's like physical stuff is good stuff. It's like, so if we approach parenting like the world does and say, well, we just got to feed them, raise them, clothe them, give them the best education possible. Paul's like, that's of some value. That's good. We should do that. But of eternal value is to train yourself and our kids in godliness. Train them. Exercise those muscles. Push the gospel into the fabric of their hearts before they even know what's happening. Work it into their nervous system before they even know who they are in Christ so that there will be an appetite in them so they'll want to be in Christ. That's the job of a parent. The good news is we fail at it all the time. (laughs) And there's grace upon grace upon grace. So when we talk about disciplines, it's always weird when I kind of preach on practices. It's always interesting because they're like, no, that sounds like legalism though, Dustin. It's like, no, no, no. That's not legalism at all. Because we're not working for anything. We're working from something that's already ours. And just like when we go and, and actually try to lead our kids in that way and form our kids and train our kids, we're doing it humbly because we mess up too. Some of us need to actually demonstrate more humility and weakness in front of our kids so they understand that you don't have to have this pristine, cute Christian life that never messes up. But if they never see you messing up and confessing sin and repenting and saying sorry and and crying out before God, how are they ever going to know that they can do that too? I think as parents, we can say the right things but actually preach a false gospel of what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus by our lives. So we've got to be very careful and have have a close watch on our lives and doctrine, like Paul says to Timothy. So we form kids the same way that we're formed as disciples, parents. Proverbs 22.6 is a great example of this. Train up a child in the way that they should go. And when what? When they're old, they won't depart from it. Train them up. See that word. Not just like tell them stuff or punish them if they don't do the things that you want them to, but it's like actually train them up. Put them in the, be, your, be the personal trainer and put them in the gym and, and work them out and, and tweak their workout so that they're actually going the way of Jesus so that when they grow old and you don't have that opportunity anymore, when your 18 summers with your kids are gone, that they don't want to depart from what they saw because it was so beautiful. Because they tasted and they saw that God is good. That's what it looks like to train them. So how does this look like? And then we'll hit five really quick. 
practices that we can prioritize? Well, I think what this looks like, honestly, is practicing and modeling good spiritual habits in the context of our homes. Now, usually you hear habit, and it's like only a negative thing. It's like something you talk about for the first four days of January, right, with your New Year's resolutions and habits, and then, I don't know, you've already broken all of them by day six, and you feel terrible, right? I've already broken all of mine. I don't know. Anybody? But habits is not just a bad thing. They're not just negative. Habits are, are really just repeated actions that shape and structure our daily lives. Something that I heard growing up that I've begun to understand now as an adult and a parent is that how you spend a day is how you spend your life. There's some wisdom in that. How you spend your day, how you, what you do with these 24 hours ultimately is just the drip in the bucket of what you end up doing with your entire life. And our daily habits are actually f- what form our daily lives. So every day, you and I are, are forming and reinforcing habits. That's what we're doing. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. Experts say it takes an average of 66 days to break or form a new habit. Some of us are like three days into our Bible reading and we're like, ugh, right? 66 days, imagine, 66 days to actually work something into your muscle memory and make it a habit or to get rid of bad ones. It's like Netflix, no. Bible, yes, right? Like 66 days to actually work that out. What we give our attention to ultimately is what shapes us, shapes who we are, shapes who we think we are gives us definitions of of goodness and success and identity and and all of that. What we give our attention to is what shapes us. Uh, New Testament scholar Michael Horton says that character is largely just a bundle of habits. Character is largely a bundle of habits. I think he's right. Because what follows here is that if what we do actually shapes who we are and who we're becoming, then few things are more important, church, than practicing good spiritual habits. You with me on that? Few things can be more important. If what we do actually shapes who we are and who we're becoming, few things should take more of a priority in our lives individually and in the context of our families than practicing good spiritual habits. But I think where we misunderstand spiritual habits and disciplines is that if the point of Christianity is spiritual pick-me-ups and lollipops and quick fixes and therapeutic feels, then spiritual habits will get old really quickly. But... If the point of the Christian life is to be conformed into the image of Christ, only a commitment to the way of life that Jesus modeled for us will do that. So our definition of what a disciple is is of utmost importance when we talk about this. I grew up in a martial arts household. Uh, I have a black belt in Okinawan Shore and Rue. I boxed, I did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I coached all of those things. And so for me, every time I think about this, I can't help but think of the original Karate Kid. Anyone? Not the new one with Jackie Chan and, and, and uh, Jaden Smith. That one was all right, but the original is just OG greatness. Amen? Amen. All right. But if you remember, Mr. Miyagi is training daniel son, and he's getting him to do all of these menial, silly tasks, and he's getting frustrated, Right? Waxing used cars, wax on, wax off, right? Painting fences, sanding an old deck that clearly is not in good shape. I said, why am I sanding this thing? It's already broken, right? In the new one with Jackie Chan and, and Jaden Smith, it's a, he's taking his coat off in the rain, right? And putting it on the coat rack and taking it back off and putting it back. And he's doing it over and over and over and over again. And in both movies, they're extremely frustrated because they're like, when are we going to learn how to do karate, <laughs> 
Like you're, I'm the karate kid, for goodness sake. Like that's why I came here. I'm going to do karate, right? Until Mr. Miyagi starts sparring with him. And he realizes that all of the muscle memory, all of the wax on, wax off, all of the sanding, all of the painting, all of the hanging of the coat on the coat rack was the movements that he was working into his nervous system so when the time to fight came, he was ready. I think Christian discipleship is so much like this. Sometimes we don't understand what it's doing, but we trust the one who invited us to follow him. We trust the master who told us to imitate him. So we're going to, knowing that he is doing something in and through us, even on the days when we don't feel it, amen? Even on the days when we don't understand exactly what spiritual disciplines are doing, we know that we can trust the process because of who we're following after. Now, when it comes to discipleship, though, I know a lot of us feel this in our daily lives. We just don't feel the vibrance of discipleship and rhythm sometimes and you got like a really good day and you're like whoa that was a good day and you got like 11 days of like what why am I doing this but when we understand this that practice is actually preparation that what we practice is actually preparing us and that's exactly what Christian disciplines do and and in parenting it's no different now listen you cannot save your kids you cannot guarantee that your kids follow Jesus You could nail everything in your household and they not follow Jesus because you are not God. So take that, take that off of yourself. Just take that burden off. Jesus' burden is light, not heavy. Take that off, but here's what you can do. You can saturate your kids' hearts in the gospel and then demonstrate and model the beauty of following after Jesus in an honest and persuasive way. That's what you can do. And I think that's exactly what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 3, When he says, listen, we plant and we water, but only God gives the growth. But if we're not planting and we're not watering, there is no growth that can happen. And that's what it looks like. So here's the good news. God loves your kids way more than you ever will. Amen? Like that's the goodness of our father. That's how good it is. Like our identity, my identity, purchased and adopted. I don't have to work for it, but I work work from the identity being called a son of God. That also belongs to my son and my daughter. Belongs to them because God is good. Because he's a good dad who wants to bring all of his lost kids and all of his orphans home. And he loves them way more than we ever could. But parents, you cannot pass on something you don't practice. It's bad math. It doesn't add up. You cannot pass on something you do not practice. To lead your kids well is to go first. It's to say, say with Paul, follow after me as I follow after Christ. Not perfectly at all, but that's the point. Follow after me while I stumble towards Jesus to show them that they have permission to stumble towards Jesus too. Come, 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 let's follow Jesus together as a family. Let's go. That is how we actually disciple our household. That is how we not only disciple our, uh, become disciples ourselves, but lead our kids as well. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, train up a child in the way that they should go, but make sure you go that way yourself first. I think that's so true. So how do we, how do, we do this? We'll highlight a few key practices, okay? Now this is like a whole sermon series in however many minutes this is gonna take, all right? So we're just gonna like hit this really fast, and, and go through the, uh, the, these practices very, very quickly. We're going to try to hit five. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus has three main core practices for his disciples. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, it's structured around Jesus saying, when you pray, assuming that we pray, when you fast, assuming that we fast, and when you give. Those are three core practices of the Christian life. Prayer, fasting, and giving. We're going to add on two others and look specifically at internalizing scripture and rest. Okay? You ready? Good. You're you're excited. I could tell. Good, good. All right. Number one, practice regular times of prayer. Practice regular times of prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray because they notice how often he prays. They come to him, they're like, so can you teach us about all that? Because we see that you do this all the time. Like, without a doubt, more than anything else that Jesus is doing in his time here on earth, prayer is the center point of Jesus' life, and he is God. Right? So so how much more do we actually need prayer to be something that we practice day to day? Teaching our kids not just how to pray, but also why we pray. Amen? Like, we got to show them, like, here's what prayer is. Here's how we're going to do it. And it's not just saying grace, but it's our daily lives being drenched in continuous communication. Prayer is not just about what we say to God or what we try to hear from God. Prayer is about living our entire life in the presence of God. That's why Paul can say, pray continuously. Some of us have like been taught weird things about that. It means like muttering things under your lips. I'm just like, Lord, please bless me as I go to Tim Hortons. Amen. Yeah. Like that, that's not pray continually. Prayer continually is that we would actually live our entire life, that there would be no decision that we make that is not drenched in prayer. That there would be nothing that we would do, there would be nothing that we'd even want or desire without it first being submitted with the posture of neediness and desperation in prayer. Amen? That's what it means to pray continually. Prayer, I think, is how we practice all of life in God's presence and demonstrate neediness. I think prayer is hard for a lot of us because it shows us how not self-sufficient we think we are. It's truly a humbling thing to experience, to be, have a posture of neediness and desperation in prayer. Now, here's what I recommend as a family. As a church, we've been practicing some like ancient prayers for a little bit. Um, we were practicing one called the uh, Prayer of Examine, which is one that comes from St. Ignatius of Loyola in about the 1500s. We've been practicing this prayer because it gives us a structure for prayer, because sometimes, depending on what tradition you come from, um, structured prayers are kind of like, oh, that's weird. I just talk to God. But then you like, you talk to God and you say nonsense, right? So you're like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I need a structure. So we've tried to find like a, like a middle ground. So we're not like praying just like grocery lists of silliness to God, but we're actually getting at heart affections and, and thought, my thought world to God. So the prayer of examine is a really good one. It, it just involves four steps. You can Google it. There's lots of really good instructions on how to do it. But it just kind of goes by replaying the last 24 hours. It's like, okay, we're, what, 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 was this a bad 24 hours? Was this a good one? So it involves reflection and meditation. Then it's like rejoicing. It's looking for evidence of grace in those 24 hours. It's like, where did I kind of see God at work? And then third, it's repenting and confession. Is there something I need to actually enter into confession or repentance about? And then there's resolution to resolve that last 24 hours. And then you end with prayer. And you pray. Now, here's what we do with our kids. We don't sit with our kids and be like, son, we're going to do the prayer of examine now. They'd be like, dad, you're already a pastor. This is weird right? What we do, though, is we do our highs and lows of our day. At the end of the day, when we're tucking them in, what was the high of your day? What was the low of your day? And then we pray out of that. We pray out of what they shared about their day. So secretly, we're training them how to do the prayer of examine. But they have no idea that that's what we're doing, right? 
And that's, that's a, a really good way. That's how we kind of practice this as a family. Day to day, showing them that every day, all day, is drenched in the presence of God, and we do that and access that through prayer. That's number one. Number two, number two, Jesus says, when you fast, when you fast. Now, fasting is by far the most underpracticed habit today in the Western church. Now, in the early church, um, fasting was a normal thing twice a week, on Wednesdays and Fridays. The whole church would fast, everybody, that was just assumed. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, when you fast. Now, we don't fast in the West, and that's not surprising, because we binge an entire series of Netflix without even a second thought, and we spend more money on eating out than any other part of the world. We don't live in a culture of restraint. We live in a culture of indulgence. And fasting practices restraint in a downstream culture of indulgence. The only time we hear about fasting in our culture is like a juice fast, with the, with the six-pack, right? Like, or an intermittent fast or whatever that is, right? But it's everywhere in Scripture, church. It's everywhere. It appears more than baptism, right? That should convict us Baptists. <laughs> should call us the fastists. <laughs> it's, it's there more than baptism. So we ought to kind of, I think, recover our understanding of fasting and start to practice it well. Now, just... So, you know, with kids, you can't do this when they're young. You got to wait till they're a little bit older because you just end up with like hangry kids in the house on fire, right? They don't eat for 15 minutes and they're already starting to like transform. It's like, oh, the demoniac? Okay, Lord. Like, so just wait till they're a bit older to actually try to practice this as a family. But parents, we have to model this first. Fasting is not easy, but Jesus promises that it's actually the way that we access power in the kingdom of God. And that's pretty wild. Fasting simply is refraining from food for a specific purpose. It's a pause on what we want so that we can be focused on what we truly need. It's a shift from a dependence upon food and physical sustenance to focusing specifically on our dependence upon God as our sustenance. That's what fasting does for us. That's what fasting works into us. It actually is how we practice restraint and self-control. So listen, I'll tell you, if you do not have self-control in other areas of your life, especially in kind of like private hidden sin, start fasting and watch what it starts to do to your nervous system and to your mind and to your thoughts. Watch what it starts to do. Because fasting is how we actually practice restraint and then self-control starts to show up in other ways in our life. It starts to actually train our body, train our, our mind and our thoughts, train our, emotion, our emotions to not get what it wants all the time so that we're reminded of what we truly need. That's what fasting does at a soul level. So, so important. With the downstream of our culture being indulgence and self-everything, the upstream of our counterformation as disciples must be restraint. John Tyson, who's a pastor in New York City, he asked a pastor in the persecuted world once that he was with what he thinks about the American church or the Western church. That includes us. And the pastor said, you have so much food and so little power. I think that's really true. Here's what John Tyson says in his book, Beautiful Resistance. Listen, most of our culture is not engaged in a nuanced evaluation of desire. Instead, our culture is driven by two questions. How do I feel and what do I want? Fasting is one of God's great tools for reorienting our longings away from the flesh and back toward God. All of us have deeply engraved, engraved patterns 
dopamine reward mechanisms, and neural pathways centered around a need for physical satisfaction. Fasting breaks these default connections and reorients us toward a greater food, intimacy with and enjoyment of God. I think he's right. So start practicing this. Start with a meal. Don't go crazy. Somebody like, I'm going to do a 40-day fast. It's like, you'll probably die. Okay, start with a meal. Start with a meal, watch how hangry you get, and then confess your sins, okay? Start with a meal, work your way up to 24 hours. Involve your kids if they're old enough. If they're not ready or not able to, show them why you're fasting. Invite them into that as you fast, okay? So try, try to practice that. Number three, we gotta keep going, I'm gonna get in trouble. Number three, practice generosity and hospitality. The third core discipline that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is when you give. This is so important in our consumeristic and individualistic age. It's so vital to show our kids that we don't just live to accumulate nice, shiny stuff and live in the burbs and then die. Like, like we have to show them by our giving that life is way more than that because all the teleprompter of culture is gonna tell them is that it's about you, do you, get yours. That's all culture is gonna tell our kids. And if we don't tell them something more beautiful, something higher, something better, and then demonstrate it by having postures of giving, they are going to watch us preach a false gospel when we're telling them something else with our lips. 25% of all of Jesus' teachings are about money. That's one in four sermons. You imagine once a month, Pastor Ed got up here and preached about money, you'd be like, what's wrong with this guy? But that was, that's what Jesus did, constantly pushing on generosity. Why? Why did he do that? Because what we do with what we have shows what's most important to us. Money does talk, but money talks about your heart. Money talks about your heart and mine. Money talks about our priorities. Money talks about our treasure, Jesus says. Your treasure is where your heart is. That's where you build your identity on. And Jesus finishes that same teaching. He says, no one can serve two masters. Our entire culture in the church has tried to live as if we can. I can though, like I can though. I can like really enjoy money and nice things and a good standard of living and follow Jesus, right? Jesus is like, but no one can do that. No one can serve two masters. So hear me, Jesus is not concerned with us having money. He's not concerned with us having money. He is concerned with money having us. And that makes all the difference. There are lots of righteous, wealthy people throughout scripture and throughout Christian history. But you wouldn't necessarily know that they were because that's not what they built their life around. Amen? And so we have to practice that. And if we're not careful, parents, we can tell our kids that our treasure is in heaven with our lips, but show them that our true treasure is on earth with our lives. We have to show them something different. And that requires a radical shift in our heart from being owners to stewards. You don't own anything. You're like, I own my home. No, you don't. The bank does. <laughs> We don't own anything. And if we have a posture as stewards and not owners, what that does is owners see their life and possessions as belonging to them to be used for their enjoyment. That's what an owner does. But in the kingdom of God, it's full of stewards. Stewards are managers of things that don't belong to them. Stewards see their life and possessions as belonging to God to be used for his purposes and our enjoyment because we get to enjoy him as we go and steward everything he's given us. And that's the beautiful thing about this. Paul reminds the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8, says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich. Like imagine the opulence that Jesus lived with. 
before he decided to come to earth, right? Like imagine. But for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Over and over and over again, church, scripture ties giving to loving. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he what? He thought about us? No, no, no. He gave his life for us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love by doing what? While we were yet sinners, Christ gave his life for us. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and did what? Prayed for us? No, gave himself for us. See the connection between loving and giving. So right now, just take stock of your own heart. What you give yourself to day to day ultimately is what you believe is your treasure. That's what you are looking to to satisfy you, to give you an identity, to, to affirm you, and to give you value. And in our head, we can say, well, but it's Jesus. But with our lives, we can make it for something else. This is why Jesus calls his disciples to live radically generous lives because it's the only appropriate response to God's radical generosity. Are you with me on that? It's the only appropriate response to his radical opulence of grace and love that he decides to leave aside and actually give it to us because of his love for us. So just think about it in your own context. Um, what has God entrusted to you and your family? Your neighborhood, uh, the relationships you have, the talents and gifts. I mean, you're a talented group. Uh, the spaces you find yourself in, your workplace, your schools, your campuses, all of those things. What has he given to you to manage and steward? Find ways to give as a family. Model this with your kids. It's like, no, they don't understand tithing. You'd be surprised. Our kids get an allowance and it's like nothing, basically. But we already are teaching them kind of the, the 10 40 40 rule. It's like 10% right away of your $2. Just kidding, it's like 15. But 10% uh, of your allowance right away goes aside and we're gonna give that, yeah? And then 40%, you're gonna save it and the other 40, you can spend it on whatever you want. It's like even Pokemon cards. I'm like, even Pokemon cards, right? But you start to work that into their, their, their nervous system when they're little and all, already they're starting to practice something that they're gonna wanna continue, to continue, uh, continue doing as they grow. So find ways to give as a family. We, uh, we had an amazing opportunity a few weeks ago to video call with one of our sponsor kids in Rwanda and to have the kids on there to have a conversation through a translator and actually see, like, to see the gratitude and the impact that we're having on other people's lives all the way across the globe. Not just people that we're loving in our lives, but it's like, look, look what's happening. In tears, praying and thanking God for us. And the kids are there asking them questions and showing them snow in the backyard with FaceTime, right? Like, and the kids are starting to learn, like, oh, this is what we do. This is what the Borlands are about. It's like, yeah, not perfectly, but this is what we try to prioritize as a family. So start giving. As a family, start practicing that. Second to last, number four, practice internalizing scripture together. Set aside daily and weekly times devoted to being reminded of who God is and what God says about himself. Because that's what the Bible does for us. That's what the Bible invites us to do. We can't just settle for kids knowing Bible verses. We want them to actually see that the Bible is a memoir of the living God. That it's actually God, God's self-expression to the world. Saying, this is what I'm like. This is your problem. This is what you're like. And this is what I've done for you to so come, right? I mean, that is the Bible summed up. All 66 books right there. The Bible is not just history or stories or weird laws. It's a memoir of who God is specifically revealed in Jesus. Uh, the Bible Project, if you don't know, has an amazing series on YouTube, with just videos of each book of the Bible and different themes. They define the Bible 
as a library of writings that are both divine and human that tells one unified story leading us to Jesus. I think that's a terrific, just beautiful definition. So to show our kids that that's what the Bible is. Now that doesn't mean that every time you sit and try to read the Bible with your kids, there's gonna be like Holy Ghost infilled moments of like they really got it. Most of the time they're gonna be sitting, picking their nose, jumping on the bed, doing what they're doing. But at least we're prioritizing internalizing scripture together as a family and we're modeling the fact that this is what gets to tell us who God is and ultimately tells us who we are and invites us to live life in him. That's what scripture does for us and in us. But we have to be really careful though is that we have to make sure we read for Jesus. We have to look for Jesus in our reading. If you remember Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees in John 5, he says, you search the scriptures because you think it's in, in here, in the scriptures, that you have eternal life. But it's they that bear witness to who? To him. But you refuse to come to me and have life. We need to show our kids that we don't have a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Bible, but that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who's capable of renewing us and changing us from within and leading us to understand who Jesus is as the one who is sent by the Father. That's what scripture does for us. That's what scripture does in us. If you do not shape your kids with the words of God, someone else's words will, okay? That's always a weird one when, when you talk to like non-Christians, like, so, oh, so you're brainwashing your kids with the stories of the Bible, are you? Huh. And you're like, if I don't brainwash my kids with what's in here, Beyonce will for me. Like, Disney will for me. Like, this is not a neutral game here, folks, right? Like, someone's words will shape the worldview of our kids. That's what words do. It'll shape their identity. It'll tell them what they're supposed to do. It'll tell them who they are. So let's get in front of that and tell them who God says they are. So that when they go out into the world, they're prepared to answer the question, the same hiss from the garden of, did God really say Let's prepare our kids to go out in the world and to be able to answer that and say, yes, God did really say. Because the lies are gonna be everywhere and they already are. So find something that works for your family. I don't know what works for you. We do all sorts of stuff to try to keep it creative with the kids. You don't need to be a theologian or have a doctorate to try to get into the Bible with your kids. In fact, show your kids that you're a student of the Bible and you don't know all the answers. And then go and find the answers together. Jump online. Ask pastors, ask your leaders, ask your friends, be in community, do it together. What I will recommend, though, is there's an amazing series published by the Good Book Company. It's called the, uh, the Tales That Tell the Truth series. And it's like five or six books now. And they are beautiful. Get them, buy them, they are amazing. Our kids, and it's amazing that it really just takes Genesis to Revelation. It just packs it into a, I mean, bedtime story size. And it, and it creates all sorts of amazing conversations with our kids when we're tucking them in. All right, fifth and last, practice resting together. Practice resting together. There's a study in the UK that was done recently. I think I, I, think I preached on Sabbath rest at some point um, with you. But in the UK, they did a, a study, and it showed that children actually learn how to rest the same way that they walk, like talk, and sleep. That resting is actually something that they need to learn and practice. And it's so important that when we look biblically, that the Sabbath is exactly that. The Sabbath is actually an invitation to rest. The Hebrew word for Sabbath is, is stop. It's just stopping. It's ceasing. It, it, it's resting from work because that's normal, right? Anybody looking forward to tomorrow? It's Monday. It's called Monday, right? But, but, but work is normal, so we're going to rest to focus on what's not normal. We're going to give special place to resting because we're going to focus on what's not ordinary. We're going to stop working. We're going to stop wishing. 
worrying, consuming, scrolling, planning, binging. We're going to stop doing what's normal so that we can delight in what's not normal. That's the Sabbath. That's the point of the Sabbath, biblically. And in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is established right from the very first pages of Genesis. You know that, right? That creation ends with what? Rest. The creative process of God ends with rest. That's crazy. And the significance is not that he was tired. It's just like, oh, God needed a nap. He was yawning on day six, and Adam and Eve saw, them, saw him yawning. Day seven, the point is that God rests after furnishing creation to say, I've created you for rest, and I've moved into the neighborhood I'm here. I'm present. That's the point. And if you notice, if you go read Genesis, day seven leaves out something really important. Day seven leaves out the refrain that takes the whole creative process. There was evening and there was morning. Day seven cuts that out. There's no evening or morning in day seven. Do you know why? Because there, it hasn't ended. Because the invitation to humanity in day seven is to rest in the creative work of the fully rested God. That's what you're created for. I mean, that's a God I can worship and get behind, amen? That you were created for rest. You were created for vacation in him. And in fact, from the very beginning of the story of the Bible, we've resisted true rest ever since Genesis 1. We've resisted that true rest and looked for rest in other things. We've built our identity on things that will not give us rest, and God is continually here saying, come and rest in me. The first sin in Genesis was not just an act of rebellion against God morally. It was a tragic exchange for looking for rest in something other than God. It was turning inwards for the answers to life and all things instead of turning outwards to the God who created us. So, what does this look like for you? I don't know, but I know that most of us don't practice an actual 24 Sabbath rest. And I know it, it, it's hard, it's hard. Uh, we've become really, really structured about this. So Friday night comes and right at dinner time, we, we light a little Sabbath candle. The kids are pumped because they can't wait to spend the next 24 hours together. We put our phones away. We put them on do not disturb. And we have 24 hours being present, doing whatever we decided to do that week. Try to eliminate digital things as much as possible for your Sabbath. Get back to like analog things. Play board games, sing, dance, cook. Go for a walk. Go in the snow. Do whatever you do. Go skating. But there's something about actually prioritizing this and making it a weekly non-negotiable where we stop. Because there's something crazy that starts to happen in your heart when we practice this. You and I start to get reminded that we're not God and we don't need to be. And it is beautiful. It is such a beautiful reminder. My kids, because they have no idea what day it is any time of the week, they'll just like run into the office on a Tuesday and be like, Dad, is it Sabbath? And I'm like, it's Tuesday. Oh, okay. Come back in three days. <laughs> As if I stay in the office for three days. Anyway. But it, it's, it's on Friday, right? So, oh, okay, okay, okay. But they're just looking forward to it all week because they get mom and dad. Like, we get this time together as a family. We, we open up scripture. We play board games. I lose at Catan. And we do all sorts of stuff, right? So do what works for you. But prioritize non-digital activities. Anything that you can do to stop and disengage and, 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 and be together as a family. All right? So that's number five. That's it for the practices. Here's how I will leave us. The point of all of these things is rest. Jesus promises us that if we're tired and worn out, the invitation is to come to him and he will give us rest. And it's through good practices and rhythms that we experience that rest. But you need to hear me. Our formation as disciples must be stronger than the formation of our culture. 
It must be. Every one of you are being formed and deformed all day, every day by the scripts and narratives of our culture. All day, you're being formed. And honestly, I think most people are unaware of how much the teleprompter of our culture and the sermons that our culture preaches at us on money and success and sexuality and identity and all of that actually deforms us. And then we show up in here hoping to be formed into the image of Christ and we struggle because there's a tension. So just, just understand me. If you think that tens of hours per week streaming and scrolling and thinking and wanting and living like everyone else who doesn't know Jesus can be counteracted by a Sunday sermon and inspire you a few songs, reading a few Bible verses, we are fooling ourselves. Fooling ourselves. Our counterformation must be stronger than the formation of our culture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I'll leave you with this, I promise. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian during the Nazi German uh, rule. He ended up hanged by the SS in 1945 for trying to lead a revolt against Hitler. But in 1935, 10 years before that, he started an underground seminary that was training men and women to go out and actually be deeply theologically formed so they could survive and be Christians in a dark, dark day in a culture of different deformation. There's a really famous story about him bringing one of his friends up to this kind of really high hill, this mountain, and it overlooked one of the Nazi camps, and so organized, looked like little ants down there getting ready for war to go and obliterate any of their enemies. And he brings them up there and he says, you see that? Our formation, what we're doing here, must be stronger than that. And I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right, and I think he still is. The rightful response to, the, to God's grace and the rest that we're invited into in Jesus is to practice after him and go after him and follow after the ways that he lived because he promises to change us and shape us so that we can go out and actually be different in the sight of the watching world. And pray for us to that end. Father, thank you that we can rest in you, that we don't need to work for our identity at all, our value is not wrapped up in what we do, what we produce, or what we don't do, and what we fail at. But that our identity is wrapped up in who you say we are, and that we can hear the sweetness of that identity in the gospel. I pray for all of us here, in person and online, that you would just renew our hearts, give us a brand new energy to follow after you, to actually pay attention to our day-to-day -day lives, not with guilt and shame and condemnation, but with freedom that we be able to restructure our daily lives, our practices and our rhythms, so that we may follow after our master and be conformed into his image. We love you, we need you, and we thank you. We ask these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand with us?